Welcome to the special episode of the Incessant Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Nedrem Financial Advisors. Nedrem is an independent financial planning practice, a one-stop shop for your financial peace of mind. Nedrem assists clients no matter where they are. They offer advice regarding investments locally and internationally, retirement plans, inventory planning, short-term insurance, and all medical aids. Phone them today at 012-817-2008 for an obligation-free revision of your financial portfolio. This episode is also sponsored by Roadtrip RSA, the first smartphone app that shows any traveler where to find the many points of interest in South Africa. By downloading it from Google Play Store or Apple iStore for free, you will be able to find hundreds of interesting places to visit. Discover South Africa with Roadtrip RSA. This episode was recorded at the beautiful Waterkloof Guesthouse located in 445 Albert Street, Pretoria. Waterkloof Guesthouse has a variety of accommodation packages available and also offer wedding and conferencing facilities. For more information and contact details, visit their website at www.waterkloofguesthouse.com. Mr. Eben Barlow, welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Even for those listeners who do not know you, can you just give us some background prior to starting Executive Outcomes? I served in the South African Defence Force, um, badged in um, the Corps of Engineers, got commissioned in the Corps of Engineers, and served as the um, engineer commander at 5-3 and 5-4 Infantry Battalions. 3-2 Battalion's reconnaissance wing um, became my home for a while. I served there as their second-in-command. Um, then in 1983, I came down to South Africa to do the obligatory military courses for promotion purposes. And um, I was then um, initially attached to um, what was known as Directorate Covert Collection, part of military intelligence, and thereafter to um, the Civil Cooperation Bureau, or CCB, of Special Forces. just need to point out that Although CCB was part of Special Forces, I wasn't a Special Forces operator. I came from a different background. Okay, but I, I know you also did some training for Special Forces that at that time during your cover for CCB. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Um, I was asked to... It actually started while I was still at the Military Intelligence College waiting for my um, time to sort of lapse at that place and um, I was asked to develop courses for special forces um, relating to covert operations. In other words, um, identifying, recruiting and running agents um, and I also had to help them with certain counterintelligence courses or counter-espionage courses which I developed and that was done um, just before I left initially to CCB. While I was in CCB, I carried on with these courses, but then under the name of Executive Outcomes, because as a private individual, Special Forces couldn't contract me, and I needed um, a legal vehicle through which to actually run this. And that's when Executive Outcomes was formed. It was 1989. Yeah, so it was actually built as a a training company. Initially built purely as a training company and an advisory company, yes. The CCB is quite controversial and after the debacle of uh, Region 6 when it became known and and it leaked in the media, you were basically uh, fired from the SADF after serving 16 years in the military. That is correct. Um, I was the commander of Region 5 which encompassed Europe and the Middle East. 
And when I got back from an operation, I was just told we'd been disbanded two weeks prior to that. And unfortunately, the the entire Region 6 um, and what they did, um, of which much of it was illegal, um, suddenly dragged the entire group into great controversy and um, basically forced its closure. And of course, the media loved that. And, it's, and it was just because Region 6 was designated for inside South Africa. Yes, look, um, when you deploy your armed forces within a country, you are actually stating, or, although not possibly verbalizing it, mm-hmm. that there's now martial law. Um, and the only way in which um, special forces intelligence gathering internally could actually happen was to establish this region, Region 6, and as I was led to believe, it consisted primarily of ex-policemen or serving policemen that they recruited in, because the belief was there that they understood the law. Um, okay. And as special forces, no matter where they operated in the country, they were still bound by the laws of the country. Yes, yes. It, it was an interesting setup. your CCB Region 5 uh, setup. You know, when you were tasked to start this unit from Colonel Joe Foster, who told you, listen, uh, you must generate your own funds. If you get caught, we don't know about you. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, there's several things. Let me start off by saying all um, proper armed forces have covert or secret units operating. Um, whether they're using the cover of journalists, NGOs, businessmen, or whatever, yeah. that's what they do. Um, that's one way of, of being outside the normal government um, environment and almost getting an objective look at information happening outside. Yes. And that information can be either disinformation, in other words, false information, or it could be genuine. Yeah. Um, but once it's collected, that then starts being analyzed to see what it is. So all armies do that. Yeah. Um, in terms of Region 6, um, or, or, or Region 5 rather, it's always, when you're a soldier and you're called and you're told that you're going to start the special thing, your ego is actually very nicely <laughs> yes, massaged. Yes. And you think, wow, I've actually someone's noticed that I'm actually capable of doing something. Um, I think part of the, the, the problem with um, Region 5 was there were one or two people operating out there, but without... Um, as I understood it, proper control and direction, and they wanted to formalize operations in Europe and the Middle East, and so I was chosen for that. I was told that I need to develop a cover, um, and then in the process developed several different covers to allow me to travel to different places, and um, to start business and, and start generating money so that I could pay agents or operatives to conduct certain tasks on behalf of the state. Um, The undertaking was given that every cent that would spend would be refunded. And unfortunately, I was lied to. Can you explain the period after the CCB? Because, I mean, now you were were fired from the SADF under this Mm. cloud of, of mystery that is CCB. Uh, you have practically a little business experience that you learned from your time at Melo Imports. What, what do you do next and how do you overcome these challenges? I think you're always left with two options. One is to become a criminal yeah. and the other is to actually go and do something. Um, of course, I was incredibly bitter. Um, I felt the way in which I'd been treated um, was not good. 
and that goes for my colleagues as well. I think we were all bitter. We were all badly treated. We also understood that that's politics. Mm. However, what we didn't understand is why we were lied to. Um, and I think that's what really caused the bitterness. After um, CCB, finding myself, you know, with, with no real income, um, I had guys abroad that I had to get back because even that the government wouldn't give me money to do. Mm. And they were four sappers who'd worked with me many years before in the, in the military. And um, I loaned money to get them back. And then I still had the special forces training, which was ongoing because special forces proper didn't know that I was the commander of mm. Region 5. Um, so I had a bit of an income, but I realized there'll come a time special forces is small and um, I'll soon have trained all of their guys and then what do I do? <laughs> yes. So I had to start looking for work elsewhere and I was fortunate in that I met um, a guy I'd spoken to a lot in Europe who had access to a South American country's drug enforcement agency. So I initially went down there, um, did some work there, did some deployments with him, um, but was then forced out through foreign interests. Um, I was also asked to go to Pakistan um, and actually go into the Kashmir and have a look at certain things that the Pakistanis were concerned about because they have this long-running border war with India. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, in, in both instances, when it really came down to getting a contract from both parties, although the proposals were submitted and some work was done, there was never really a, a contract per se. South America, it was myself and five guys. Um, in Pakistan, it was just I. So there was no one there. But I also had the um, some of the special forces guys I trained um, liaised with the police's gold and diamond branch who were told that they were trained by me and that came to De Beers Diamond Company okay. Corporation. And I was then contracted to establish um, a covert unit within the De Beers Mining Corporation in Botswana or Debswana. Mm. And um, that allowed me to train several of, of their security guys and actually put them into cover in order to identify where diamond or diamond theft is taking place and illegal diamond dealing is taking place. Yeah. Um, but our involvement in Angola ultimately led to the cancellation of that contract. Um, really driven by the media in particular. Yeah, that's where we come to Soyu, uh, where you helped the FAA retake Soyu from UNITA control. Can you just give us a, a brief introduction? I don't want to give away everything, you know, that is uh, in, your, in your book, but if you can just give us that brief uh, intro to, to the Battle of Soyu. Okay, Soyu in, in many ways happened by accident. Um, international mining company, um, oil company, mm. um, had a lot of equipment on the harbour, um, unbeknownst to us, the harbour was under control of UNITA and um, the contract was to actually go up there and act as security guards. In other words, protect the oil recovery teams, equipment recovery teams. So that's where it started, just as a security it operation? It was a, plate, a, a straightforward security operation. The media heard of it and tried to turn it into something it wasn't, from facts that we are, or their facts that we're going to assassinate Savimbi, mm -hmm. um, we're invading Angola to seize control of the oil. So much lies were told that they actually forgot what they lied themselves, because every story just generated its own bulldust that followed it, 
and it just got bigger and bigger and out of control. And the end result was we actually had to adopt a completely different posture to go into Soyu. I saw you were recently labeled on a, on a TV interview as mercenary leader. And mm. I know it may be trivial to some, but you know it's important when we talk about the, le- the legality of this. What, according to you, is the difference between a mercenary and a private military contractor? Okay, first of all, um, I'm pleased you asked that because some people ought to go and do their research. A mercenary is going to fight or work for whoever pays him the most money. So if um, I'm working for you and I'm approached by Joe Soap and offered more money and that's where I go, I'm actually mercenary in my actions because this is about money. Um, the great irony is, is that Executive Outcomes had a government license to operate, authorized by the government, signed by the government. Um, we had a legal contract um, with a client, i.e. an oil company or later a government. Every financial transfer was regulated through the Reserve Bank and the South Africa Revenue Services. And yet they had the goal to call us illegal um, mercenaries, despite the fact that we were part of the Angolan army, uh, or became part of the Angolan army. So they muddled up their own definition um, of what a mercenary really is. In fact, a plumber who works for you um, and decides to go and work in an an adjoining country, but where he gets more money, um, he's going to do that. But is he then a mercenary or not? The, The international law on it is very vague. And people love to play in the field of vagueness. Yeah. It was interesting to see how you, how you vet your operations. I think there's, a, there's a, a moral thread that goes through each operation which you conducted in, in, you know, in an Angola and Sierra Leone. Can you speak to that a bit? Well, first of all, um, I believe, although we live in South Africa, we are ultimately Africans. I also believe that every problem that happens north of our borders eventually flows south. And I've said that all along. Um, To me, it's better to see strong governance in Africa um, because that adds to stability. Stability adds to investment, and investment adds to work. Um, And especially insofar as South African companies are concerned. Africa was lying barren. Um, Unfortunately, through very unprofessional media manipulation, by not only the media, but by some of their masters in military intelligence, they actually destroyed that window of opportunity South Africa had. Um, We chose clients on A, they had to be the formally recognized government of the day. B, we would not assist anti-government forces whatsoever. Um, And C, we would look at what their records were in terms of how they acted. You know, and everyone always made the comment, yes, but the Angolans murdered civilians. If you look at what's happened in the Middle East by the so-called coalition of the willing, Mm. that is murdering civilians, not what we were seeing unfolding in, um, whether it be Angola or elsewhere. So, you know, that wasn't our job, but governments have to act against violence. And that's what constitutes a difference between the state, the ruling party, and the government. And there's a big difference. Um, And people seem to forget that the fact that a government is um, recognized by the United Nations as the legal government, they might have a record which we don't want to be associated with. And and we've turned down contracts like that. 
We will also not have worked for government A and then switch sides to support government B for more money. Yeah. Our word was our bond and we would stand and fall by that. Yeah, it was interesting in that uh, in, in Angola where you had years before fought against the FAA, which is the legitimate government of Angola, and now you were asked to train their forces against UNITA, who was backed by the South African government, amongst others. I think people need to go and do their research on UNITA. Um, UNITA was a Maoist organization that intended to establish a Maoist communist state in Angola. Um, even recently, in the early 2000s, UNITA admitted that the transition from Maoism to democracy is incredibly difficult to do. So that on the one hand. Secondly, the South African public were duped into believing that UNITA is this great Christian organization that's going to bring peace and happiness throughout Angola. It wasn't. Um, thirdly, we went to war in Angola, not for saving Angola or fighting the red tide. Yes, of course, there were um, communist forces there. But there was a much deeper underlying issue, I believe, and I believe that all had to do with natural resources and our intent to take those natural resources, our as a country. Um, if you really look at, um, yes, the South African army performed greatly, and make no mistake, it did, against overwhelming odds. The Angolans had no option but to call in for help. And there's a whole story that goes about what happened when the MPLA actually won of the three forces fighting in Angola. They came to South Africa for help. We rejected them. Mm -hmm. Instead, we turned on them. And because of that, they opened Angola to bases for SWAPO, who ironically were being supplied by UNITA um, with South African taxpayers' money. And these are things that really galled me. Um, make no mistake, if the war was going and the country called me, I'd have gone again. Mm. Even though I know what I know now. Mm. But to me, just the, the way in which this was done. You know, we, we end up supporting the enemy, the young guys are going off to fight. And I find that rather despicable. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the other requests that you got that I would think was quite uh, lucrative, like, you know, returning President Jawara of Gambia to power. Uh, the assassination request by President Mobuto of Zaire to assassinate one of his ministers. So, uh, you know, you had a lot of requests for, I believe, very lucrative contracts, which oh, we you did. turned out. Oh, we did. But, you know, you have to draw a line between what is actually morally acceptable and what isn't. Um, President Mobuto wanted to bump someone off who he felt was stealing his money. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and you can't involve yourself in things like that. And you... To us as a company, we weren't um, prepared to involve ourselves in party political issues. Um, if President Mobutu had contracted us to help train his army, um, then that's what we would do. But during that contract, if he said, just quietly go and shoot Minister so-and-so, mm. we wouldn't do it. Um, because that's not, with, that's not what we do. By doing that, all you do is ultimately making a bigger problem even bigger. After the security contract with uh, the FIA turned into a request by General Fasera to train FIA forces, you had to recruit probably more guys yes. and you had to start training the Angolan army. And something that you stress a lot is doctrinal failure. 
Mm-hmm. Can you please elaborate on it? Okay, a doctrine is is a a thought process that tells you what you should do, but it doesn't tell you how to do it. Um, and there's a difference. Um, if I want to leave this room, what I should do is go out the door. Okay, it doesn't tell me how I should go out the door. So there's a lot of flexibility built into doctrine. However, people get very dogmatic. They think there's only one way to go through the door. And that's where doctrine becomes a problem. And when it becomes a problem, you are not prepared to be flexible or you cannot be flexible quick enough. Um, So just that on doctrine. When it comes to the um, Angolan forces or FAPLA that was renamed FAA, they were taught an East Bloc doctrine, um, which is really designed to fight conventional battles in Europe somewhere, um, just as what other African armies are taught a NATO doctrine, which is to fight the Soviets somewhere in Europe. And these things don't work in Africa. We also had to have a look at, you know, how does one take these doctrines they have and subtly try and change them to everyone's advantage. Um, so we look at what are they doing wrong, why are they doing it wrong, and how can we fix it? And then by fixing it, try and instill a sort of almost a, a, a deep hidden memory of this is how they can do it. Yeah. You've also mentioned that most African armies are being set up to fail by foreign private military companies in their training. Yes. Is that because they don't understand Africa, the African people, or African warfare? I think all three of those. And, and then you have to add the money aspect as well. Um, Typically, um, foreign, Western private military companies are covertly funded by their governments in many instances. They don't bid on a contract and, and go through a bidding process to get the contract. So they ultimately end up in country A or country B. They have no clue what the historical origins of the problems are. They have no understanding of the political conflict taking place. They have no understanding of the people. Um, and they have no understanding of this army they're supposed to be training, or indeed even the enemy. Mm. So what you have is um, a, a sudden Western thought process being forced on these armies by 18, 19-year-old foreigners who've been in Africa for maybe one or two weeks, mm. and they're expecting soldiers who've been fighting for several years to actually listen to them. So that's the one thing. The second thing is, why stop the war then? Because if it ends, they're no longer needed. And we've seen these wars. Look at Somalia, look at Nigeria, look at DRC, dragging on and on and on, mainly driven by foreign governments and their private military companies. Because this is a lucrative business. Why end it then? Um, Our approach has always been end the problem as quickly as possible. And that's what we've done. So after your successful involvement in Angola, you went to Sierra Leone, uh, where President Strasser asked you to assist the SLA in a training uh, cum fighting force. Mm. What was the objective there? Because I know that the rebels were drawing near to Freetown in Sierra Leone and mm. he was about to lose power. What was his request to you at that moment? Was it? I know it was to train his forces, but there wouldn't have mm. been time. So was it to actually come in and hold the, hold the offensive from the rebels? No. Um, you know, when you grow up in, in the military, there are certain things instilled in your mind during training. One of these was um, 
a thing called the center of gravity, which was a, 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 a military political theory which he formulated in his books. He was a Prussian officer, and his books in German are called Vom Krieg, um, or On War. And in there he identifies a center of gravity. So just put that one side, knowing there's a center of gravity. Um, the initial negotiations with the Sierra Leonean government was done by the um, chief executive officer at that stage, Lafrance Leighton. He was in Sierra Leone, I was in Indonesia. Um, because of a hostage situation yes, there. Yes, um, So Lafrasse arranged this whole thing, and, and the, the request from the president was really to save Freetown and then save the country. Um, okay. Now I go back to the center of gravity. Um, in Angola and before that, I had um, formulated the opinion that a thing called a center of gravity, which is that power hub that an enemy has, that when you destroy it, he collapses. Um, that there was no center of gravity, be it Angola, be it Sierra Leone, or anywhere else we've worked. Mm. And that it was really a triangle, and we called it a trinity of gravity, which was the enemy, the local population, and the financial support. Um, and in both Angola and in Sierra Leone, that's what we did. Immediately cut off the business model of the rebels, the illegal mining of resources, be it diamonds, titanium, gold, whatever. Yeah, and that got misconstrued for you were going for the diamonds yeah, for yourself. Yeah, no, but that's the yeah. idiocy of, yeah. of um, the people who were anti-us doing what we were doing because mm -hmm. a lot of them were benefiting from this. Um, a lot of white-collar diamond companies in South Africa and across the world were benefiting from illegally mined diamonds in Angola and illegally mined diamonds in Sierra Leone. Um, and of course, we had become a threat to that because we're going to cut that off. Mm. Um, and the theory was, you know, if we took the diamond fields and we got the local population to realize we're there to help them, we're actually going to destroy the enemy on the battlefield, either by gunfire or economically ruin him completely. So that was the Sierra Leone and Angolan thing, really. But the initial mission from the president was save Freetown and save the country. Because when we got there, most embassies had closed, their people had fled, um, and it was virtually a deserted area. Another interesting thing you pointed out, you don't just go into a country and start, and start a gunfight to drive out the rebels. You also make use of, of, of the locals in, uh, in a hearts and minds campaign. Yeah, look, I think the term hearts and minds is sometimes very deceptive. I remember in the SADF days when they launched these Hearts and Minds campaigns, they had a totally different name for it, and that was called Khatkrai Petrolis, um, which it really isn't and shouldn't be. Um, in, in all these conflicts and wars, 90% of the people don't want conflict and don't want war. And you have a small 10% that actually intimidate and force others to join their side. The, the whole approach was, if you get the locals to understand you are there actually for their benefit, they are going to support you. Um, and they support you in many ways, in terms of identifying river crossing places, identifying safe roads, giving you intelligence on where the enemy is, and to help these people, because they just trapped between two um, opposing forces, they suddenly realize that you are actually of benefit to them. Mm. And then they start freely volunteering information. 
And that's what's happened, um, whether it be in Angola or Sierra Leone or elsewhere. So the people are very important. How do you solve this problem of a, of a country going into a death spiral? I mean, I think President Strasser was also appointed to power via a military coup. Yes. But then you get the rebels who come for him, and, you know, once they are in power, it, how do you stop this? I think if you look at um, Sierra Leone Strasser, um, he had become the golden boy of Africa, really. After he marched into Freetown and took the office of the president who had very hastily vacated it. I mean, that's what really happened. He walked in, sat down and said, I'm the president. <laughs> um, and it was accepted by the people. But the whole way in which he did it got enormous backing from the West. Um, and he was fated all over where he went. I mean, he went to meet the Queen. He went to meet the president of the US. Other world leaders called on him because he was seen as this almost golden saviour of, of West Africa to some extent. Um, so in that sense, he's legitimised. And the UN accepted him. So he was legitimised. But when you have a problem like that, the biggest threat becomes the lack of political will. Because the lack of political will results in a lack of military will. Um, so if your politicians dither around and can't make decisions... The military have to dither around and cannot make decisions because they are an, um, an extension of politics. They are there to uphold a constitution, and they couldn't do it. Um, so the whole thing to um, President Captain Strasser was, okay, we'll come in and we'll sort out the problem. When we need you, we'll ask you. Um, but other than that, leave us alone. Um, and that's what very much happened. Um, when the guys got to Freetown, we had no equipment. And I'm, when I say no equipment, I mean nothing. There were a few Bedfords, a few Land Rovers and a BMP or two that were all wrecked and ruined. Mm. But they quickly fixed these things. Spoke to the chief of the army then, Madabir, who was a brigadier, which is just an interesting thing. The captain is the president and the chief <laughs> of the army is a brigadier. Um, yeah. And he tried to help where he could, but he didn't have much with which to work mm. anyway. Um, and our first decision was to reclaim the diamond fields in the east of Sierra Leone. If we did that, we could actually um, deny the, the rebels funding. Um, we could also show the locals that they could be defeated. And we could effectively open the road from Freetown to Connor and divide the country in two. Um, and that way the rebels would have to divide themselves in two or gather at one lucrative target. Mm. Um, so that's what we did. We took um, the diamond fields back. Um, the rebels fled the area. Um, the guys actually started a, a huge campaign to sort of help the locals in the area. Um, and that was with medical, going around to different villages, just checking that they're okay, meeting the different chieftains. Um, the commander at that stage, Rul van Heerden, actually set up um, a sort of council I can't remember the exact name he gave it, um, which I was very upset about, I must add, because I thought that's now really wasting time. Um, but it turned out to be a very good move on his part um, because this consultative council became um, almost a glue that started holding the communities together but also became a source of a lot of intelligence for us. 
you you mentioned that you had to start your own intelligence network, not only abroad, but you know within South Africa. And I think we we will get to the the, the media uh, campaigns launched against executive outcomes. Mm. How how important was that intelligence network, and how vast was it? Well, look, um, intelligence is always important. Um, because intelligence is what drives a strategy and it actually drives your tactics as well, depending on the level of intelligence that you're talking about. Within South Africa, the aim was to identify who are the people that are actually assisting rebel forces in Africa, from South Africa. That was important. Within the countries we operated in, we needed intelligence as well. We didn't only need the locals to tell us, we needed to have our own agents um, placed in order to give us different and more objective views than what locals give us. Because locals are emotional, they've been attacked, their people have been killed. So what they give you is often emotionally based. Whereas an agent ought to give you that information, but very objectively. And with that objectivity, you can actually extrapolate what's happening and then predict what's the enemy going to do. So we knew within South Africa um, we ultimately knew who was really supporting rebel movements in Africa and sadly it was people from our own armed forces and the government um, and beyond that we also knew that a lot of funding for the rebels were coming in from foreign sources and that foreign sources were actually driving the narratives of the conflicts going on in Africa. Yeah, it's interesting to note, you know, some of the bad actors where uh, you read about them in, in, in the chapter on Angola and then they pop up again when you're talking about uh, Sierra Leone or uh, wherever you were involved in some of the other countries. Yeah, it's power. Um, people who have access to power um, see themselves as not having to be accountable to anyone or to any authority um, and can therefore go on lying and deceiving and cheating as they wish because that power protects them. Um, and unfortunately, at that stage, there were a huge amount of such people running around um, in the previous South African government and in the post-94 South African government. The rescue in Indonesia, Irian Jar, where you assisted General Sobianto, um, after U SAS and US forces failed, and mm. I mean they had special forces involved there. Yeah. How did executive outcomes, uh, you know, successfully get the get the hostages freed where other forces, elite military forces, have failed? I always adopt a jaundiced view to elite military forces um, because I've learned that many people who class themselves as elite are certainly not elite. Um, that said, our approach with the Indonesians was that we would integrate with them. We would become part of Kopassos, which is the Indonesian Special Forces. Um, we did get a briefing from General Subianto um, on what they had tried and what had failed. And it was very obvious, or almost ironic, that the most obvious way to do it was never considered. Um, and I'm not saying it, I have a conspiracy theory toward that, but it was just very obvious that when you look at a problem, there are different ways in which to resolve it. But the most obvious one was never even considered. Um, so what we did is we got um, 
one of the team leaders in who actually specialized in urban warfare and hostage rescue and he became the team commander. We trained the Indonesian, a group of Indonesian special forces and um, we deployed with him to release the hostages, but at that stage as members of the Indonesian forces. That's an, that's another thing that I that I saw in your book as well. You didn't just get contracted for certain types of jobs like just security or you know uh, fighting off rebel forces. There were a lot of specialized uh, requests, like setting up a K9 unit in, in the same Indonesia country or uh, hostage rescues. Who are the types of guys that you recruited, or how, is it just that you that you uh, get taught all of these skills when you're in the South African army and you're just able to do all of them very successfully? Or did you go out and handpick certain guys for certain jobs or certain units? I think in the army you obviously got exposure to certain things. But none of us were really specialists in, in, in many of these things we did. Mm. Um, so often you would do things by the seat of your pants. Um, you would have to improvise and be incredibly flexible, flexible and mentally agile in any situation. Mm. Um, because remember, we were under, we as South Africa, were under massive embargo from the outside world. So we were not exposed to how they were doing things. We would read about it, etc. And whatever our guys here knew of urban warfare was taught to them by South Africans who'd either in one way or the other obtained information on certain things, certain doctrines. Um, I know some of our police went abroad to um, work with the Germans um, on hostage rescue and picked up some good tips there and that was transferred to special forces. Um, so the guy we, we selected for that um, was serving within executive outcomes at the time, um, but we knew that he had a speciality that we required elsewhere. Um, the rest of the guys were all just South African soldiers, so and, and ex-police um, task force or Kufud, there were some MK guys in the company, 3-2 um, battalion, one paraben, um, six one mechanized infantry. So there was this whole cross-section of people. But everyone knew that if we fail, we did. Um, and I think that becomes a, a motivating factor to try and do as good as you can. Um, and that guys would then take the advice given to them by the team leader, conduct rehearsals, train, make sure the Indonesians and ourselves are exactly on the same page, that we understand how we're going to do things and how we're going to react when things go wrong. Um, because that's what gives you flexibility. Um, and, I mean, the guys went in and they did it. Mm. Um, the irony was it was applauded by the world when the host hostages were released. Um, the British quickly issued a statement, which I mention in the book, mm. um, to sort of hint, hint, nudge, nudge, it was us who did it. Um, and a lot of other units were suddenly claiming um, involvement in this hostage rescue. Um, but when it came out, executive outcomes was there, the propaganda machine switched on again. And we were then accused of murdering civilians, destroying villages, etc. Yevon, during your time at executive outcomes, you were the, the target of different planned assassination attempts. I think about the car bomb threat that the uh, MI agent warned you about, the assassination attempt, which actually came very close in Springbok Park. Yes and uh, the UNITA heat team that was mm -hmm. sent to South Africa. 
And then, of course, there was the one where Eugene de Kock was also yes. said to have give, been given an order to, to assassinate you. Correct. Um, those are the ones that, that I knew of. Um, but once again, I had good people around me who could often warn me in time. Um, of course, there are times when you get no warning, um, which was the Springbuck Park thing. I'd actually believed I was going to speak to someone who had information of great value to the safety of the EO guys in Angola. Um, but, I mean, all these things you, you have to take. It comes with the territory. But it's always interesting to see who's behind this because then you know whose interests you are hurting. Um, Eugene denied it um, at yeah, the that's TRC. What I to know, yeah. He lied. Mm. It's as simple as that. Is it? Yes. Yeah, and it was interesting. You, you actually invited him to your home and asked him directly. Correct. Yeah, if you yeah. want to kill me, go ahead and do it. Mm. But there's a consequence that'll come. Mm. Um, he, on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, denied that. He said that he'd come to warn me. He lied. Yeah. Then. Um, there were also some other projects that I saw that you were involved in. I think the one was Aquanova in Zambia. What mm. were these projects that you also ran while doing all of these other... Uh, well, the, the thing is, um, the more condemnation and propaganda and bulldust followed executive outcomes, the more people quietly wanted to talk to us. And I'm, when I say the more people, I'm talking of African governments. Um, the Zambians came down and said that they were going through a, a huge drought period. Okay. Um, was there a way in which we could help them? Um, it was then agreed to actually set up a company. Um, we would use Zambian government um, access with South African technology and drill for water um, for the Zambians. And this company called Aquanova consisted of I think there were five Zambians on the board and four South Africans on the board. Um, got government go ahead to drill, and Aquanova's aim was to, if they drilled an empty borehole, they wouldn't charge you. Um, okay. And there were really good geophysicists involved with that. Um, unfortunately, it too became the target as a cover of executive outcomes, trying to undermine the Zambian government. And ultimately, we left. You know, we just. We just said, look, if you people aren't going to stand up and say something, we're leaving. And that's what we did. The African community saw you more as problem solvers rather than private military companies. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. Then I want your thoughts on the United Nations. I know you've spoken out harshly against them in the past, but, you know, I want to speak especially with, to the situation in Rwanda and the warnings from General uh, Dallaire. Uh, their costly involvement in Sierra Leone after you left, and then, of course, the South Sudan incident in July of 2016. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think you have touched what to me is a very sensitive thing, and that's peacekeeping. Um, many years ago, I made the comment that there can be no peace, um, or rather there can be no peacekeeping if there isn't peace, because how do you keep peace when there's a conflict mm -hmm. going? Um, and that attracted a lot of negativism towards me for being so negative about peacekeeping. But if you really look at peacekeeping across the continent, it's a business model. Um, it has nothing to do with bringing peace. Um, when the UN peacekeepers arrived in Angola, um, pressure was put on President de Santos to terminate our contract. Um, 
which he did and which we accepted because we're under contract, so we left. The UN lost control of a war that had actually been ended. Um, we're also secretly providing arms to one or more of the forces engaged um, in the conflict. It cost them billions of dollars after the war reignited again and finally ended with the death of Savimbi. Um, so they'd created a problem in Angola. In Rwanda, they had early warning of what's coming. Um, the Canadian general you mentioned um, is still a very bitter man over what happened in Rwanda. However, when the Rwandan genocide started, um, I was called by the UN and Executive Outcomes was asked to immediately draw up a strategy because the UN wasn't sure what to do. Um, we drew up this, and we had just two or three days opportunity, and the guys who did it um, worked day and night to get this complete because thousands of people were being slaughtered. Um, this was sent to the UN, came back and told, no, it's too expensive. Um, you know, they'd much rather go in and, and spend billions and billions, which is what they did, um, and still took months to get the problem sorted out. In Sierra Leone, um, they replaced a small contingent with 17,000 men and a massive budget and lost control of the situation. And we've seen this happening everywhere. And therefore, I believe sincerely that it's a business model that is not aimed at bringing peace anywhere. Um, and anyway, if there's peace, they have to leave. So where do they go? But it's also a way in which they sort of give certain sheltered employment um, and people make money all around. And that's why we laugh. When we go into a country, we look at who shouts the loudest first. It's usually the UN, the NGOs, because when this conflict ends, they're no longer needed. Um, so we're actually killing the goose that's laying their golden egg, and they don't like it. So I, I, I look at every UN engagement with a huge amount of, um, what shall I call it, concern, because I know problems are coming. And, and, you know, people in South Africa say, well, if there's a problem, the UN will come in. Let me tell them now, if the UN comes in, it will be a problem no one will be able to handle ever. Then it's too late. Yeah, it's too late. But, I mean, can you stop, can you stop any conflict if you don't have a mandate to engage the enemy? Who doesn't have a mandate? The UN. Oh, that's nonsense. Is it? They choose not to engage the enemy. Civilians are slaughtered within eyesight of UN camps. There's no intervention. I've personally been in countries where 8 o'clock in the morning, and I've got a photograph, I'm busy with another book and I'm putting this in there, okay. of a UN peacekeeper in his uniform lying sleeping in the sun because he's still drunk. Um, and this isn't an African UN peacekeeper. This is a foreign UN peacekeeper. Disinformation in the media has been featured prominently since the U.S. election in 2016. Mm -hmm. But you have experienced this since executive outcomes inception. And, you know, it's something that is uh, that is prominently featured in your book. Mm. How has this affected not only executive outcomes, but, you know, yourself? If I look at your resignation from executive outcomes in 1998. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, disinformation... Um, call it fake news or lies, whatever you want to call it, innuendo, rumor, doesn't matter, mm -hmm. creates a perception. 
and people's reality is governed by that perception. Mm. So we had this huge backlash from the South African public that executive outcomes must be shut down. Um, and that huge outcry was based on lies because of the public's false perception. And that's driven by the media. Um, you know, to me, a, a free and independent media is important only if they report facts and report objectively. Um, I think if they lie, they should be held accountable for their lies and they should be held accountable for the damage they do. Um, so that's my take on the media. I think it's important, but there needs to be accountability. At that stage with the South African media, there was no accountability. So they could make whatever allegations they wanted to. I mean, from the fact that I changed my name to change the color of my one eye to that, I don't know, you know, I'm working for the Russians, I'm working for the Americans, I'm working for the British, we've turned to cannibalism, and all these things, um, people read it in the media and they hear it on the radio and they see this thing on television, um, and that's their truth. In other words, that's their perception. So it has a huge impact. It also resulted in a pushback from certain African countries against South Africa. And whether the government likes to admit it or not, there's still animosity because of executive outcomes and certain African governments that the South African government saw fit to complain that we were working there. And that goes for pre-94 and post-94. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it had a huge impact. But eventually it led to the point where um, a certain very devious person in South Africa actually got a motion pushed in the British House of Commons, an early morning motion, to outlaw executive outcomes. Um, and I mention him in the book and I mention the motion that was passed. And um, that had two main aims. It had the aim of discrediting executive outcomes completely and turning us into an illegal group of people, which we never were. And then secondly, to get African governments to terminate our services so that British private military companies could come in and take over. Um, and that was achieved through the media and disinformation. Um, you cannot fight the media. Well, at that stage, I couldn't fight the media. We tried. Every press release issued was shredded and said it's not in the public's interest. Um, but we kept those press releases, and I still have them. As I kept the, the um, top-secret lies that were published by military intelligence and sent out to be analysed. So all this had an impact on the company. And of course, on me, it became... A, a hours and hours every day were spent trying to counter the disinformation war and actually say what's going on. So it had a huge impact on me. And then, of course, people trying to bump me off because we we buggering up their, their yeah. personal financial interests in Africa. How much of this was for sensationalism and how much was uh, from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Military Intelligence that's just actually running the disinformation campaign? I would say that um, probably 90% came from state authorities um, and that the media was just being used as the conduit with which to spread their lies and disinformation. But there were people in the media who were very happily accepting silent salaries. Um, and I actually asked a journalist one day, who was more 
illegal. You or us, you never even declared your money to SARS. We did. And we earned ours legally. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was that instance. However, I mean, Foreign Affairs set up an executive outcomes desk and their role was to generate lies and disinformation. They sometimes got their own dates confused. Um, you know, they'd issue a statement today and when questions say, no, it appeared in a Dutch newspaper, and in fact it appeared the following day, um, you know, so they forgot what they lied about, but they issued a... Um, one of their internal bulletins stating that I was responsible for the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut with the aims of actually getting the U.S. to declare me as an international criminal. Mm. And those types of things show you how deep and deceptive our politicians were at that stage. Okay, Yemen, you left uh, Executive Outcomes in 1997, 1998, mm. and the company also uh, soon stopped operating. Mm. What did you do since since then and, you know, prior to becoming chairman of STEP International? Um, basically, I decided to devote my time to horses um, because horses are honest. Um, whereas I'm, I sadly can't say that about many human beings I've met. Um, and I started a, a, a riding school and went riding and, and working on, on ranches, etc., in order to just be around horses essentially and um, I started a, a breeding operation of, of horses, um, a feedlot and a riding school out near Rayton. Um, but over time I got approached by African governments and you know they kept saying restart executive mm -hmm. outcomes and I, I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. um, but I was asked to act as an advisor to some of them um, which I started doing and that started taking me away from the horses, um, eventually got rid of the ranch and then I was still when the guys of STEP approached me acting as an advisor to some governments um, and their embassies here in Pretoria. Okay, so STEP was not founded by, you were, you were approached no. by a company already established called yes. STEP? Yes, um, the three founding members of STEP um, came up with a name and the concept while they were in Chikarubi prison. Um, because they were part of that failed um, coup d'etat attempt in um, Equatorial Guinea. Um, and they got arrested in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously in jail they had a lot of time to think and talk and debate. And that's where the idea was STEP was born. Um, they established um, STEP, these three guys, who I'll refer to as Harry, Loki and Simon, mm -hmm. um, established STEP and... Um, I think it was in 2009, um, they approached me and asked whether I would chair their company for them. And that's how I became involved with STEP. I don't own STEP, have no shares in it, I didn't start it. I'm simply there as the chairman of their company. It's interesting that you wouldn't, you know, if you if you go back into the start something again from scratch, because I mean you've you've got the clientele, that you would join another company, that they that they have some interesting proposition or was it their values or what what inclined you to join a company instead of just starting one again from scratch well two of them i knew very well um who'd served in executive outcomes um you know i had a choice obviously i could say no and carry on acting as an advisor um but these are good men um and i think they deserved something um so i was prepared to help them um 
I terminated my services with the embassies and took over STEP full-time, but they didn't have a contract um, as STEP. Um, they had trained in uh, Mexico, they trained a, a police counter-drug team um, who did exceptionally well, but foreign pressure had them disbanded. Um, so that was a, a feather in their cap. Um, they'd also been involved in Iraq during the invasion, and some of them did the initial reconnaissance for the coalition forces. So they'd been around, but they wanted to um, have something that would really bring about some stability in Africa. And that was their, their driving issue. And I rather liked that. There was a huge private military contract to drive during the whole oh. Afghanistan campaign. Did you consider uh, you know, participating? In I didn't, um, for the simple reason that I didn't view that as a legal operation. Um, you know, the, the irony about all of this is an aircraft manned by Saudis flies into um, buildings in the U.S. Thousands of people lose their lives. The U.S. responds by invading Afghanistan um, to take out a man who was their ally called um, Osama bin Laden. Um, and then the, the supposed drawdown of forces in Afghanistan, plus additional forces, resulted in the invasion of Iraq. Um, so I wasn't too keen to get myself involved in that because I viewed that as a, as a strategic error that was being made by the West. Um, not that Saddam was a good guy, but that the way in which he ruled, he had control over what was happening in his country, much the same as Gaddafi. Mm. He actually controlled the Libyans. Um, and so did Saddam control the Iraqis. And of course, they weren't angels or good guys at all. But the casualties that have subsequently been inflicted on those nations far exceeds anything these um, despotic rulers did. And the budgets that have gone into there are astronomical and still nothing has happened. But going back to that, I was asked whether I would reactivate executive outcomes and I said no. Um, for precisely that reason, I thought it wasn't the right thing or the legal thing to do. Um, however, one of the people who worked very much against executive outcomes got his reward and was given a huge contract with no background, no experience, no men. Um, and it was just interesting for me to observe that as well. One of uh, STEP's most prominent projects was uh, your work in Nigeria. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, we, we were initially approached um, by a, a contractor um, who had been asked by the Nigerians to find someone to rescue the Shibok girls. Um, those were the girls the Islamist movement Boko Haram had captured at a little town called Shibok. Um, so these girls were held hostage and obviously there was pushback from the parents that government must do something, military must do something, police must do something. Um, and despite years of foreign training given to the Nigerian army by their so-called foreign friends, they were unable to do anything. And if you really go back to that conflict, Boko Haram have just got stronger and stronger or had been getting stronger and stronger all the time, despite all this training the Nigerian army were being given. So we were asked to actually rescue the Shibok girls. And that was the initial mission that was given to us. 
And that is what we accepted contractually. Um, it's very interesting when we look at the Nigerian army um, in that we were given their special forces um, to train, to um, assist during this rescue operation. And which is how we normally work. We integrate with our client government's army. Um, unfortunately, we started putting them through a selection and had to stop it very quickly because we, none of them would have passed the selection. Um, and we found it very disappointing because there's nothing wrong with the Nigerian soldiers. But what was wrong is that they had the incorrect foundation laid and they were set up to fail, as I mentioned before, on numerous fronts. Mm. We were still busy with that training when the 7th Infantry Division at a town called Maiduguri was close to being overrun by Boko Haram and we were asked to very quickly change our mission. Now you must know we have a, a contract of three months because that is what was initially agreed to, to rescue the girls. Um, one month of training has passed. We now have to digress from hostage rescue train the Nigerians how to conduct an offensive mobile operation, which they hadn't been trained in, and actually help um, 7th Infantry Division. Um, so the decision was taken that we would um, apply certain concepts of um, composite warfare. We'd immediately deploy an intelligence team into Madaguri while we geared up with the training of the Nigerian troops. Um, our guys were integrated into the Nigerian unit that was established called 72nd Mobile Strike Force. And um, the first objective was to retake a town called Mafa. In other words, create a buffer between Madaguri and the outlying areas, and then go straight for the jugular of Boko Haram. Um, so we had a month's hostage rescue training, um, in which case we had to often go back to basic training, which was never given to these poor troops. Um, then change that into a mobile warfare operation with 72nd Mobile Strike Force with minimum equipment, and I have to stress that, minimum equipment. And we really had one month in which to operate. Um, in that month, the 72nd Mobile Strike Force took terrain larger than Belgium from Boko Haram, and the international community was up in arms. This save the girls, hashtag save the girls, hashtag this, hashtag that, are all just sound bites that are issued to look as though people are concerned or willing to do something, when in fact it suits them that these things go on. Yeah. Um, and the pressure put on President Goodluck Jonathan was to terminate our contract or lose the election. Um, he terminated our contract, which was anyway for three months. We saw out the three yeah. months and he lost the election anyway. And Boko Haram have just got stronger and stronger. I mean, they, yes. and, and we warned against this. But uh, what we saw there in, uh, in Mozambique earlier this year, because I know earlier in the conversation you said, you know, what happens up in Africa will soon trickle down, uh, will trickle down south. Do you think uh, we will see this Islamic extremism trickle down to South Africa? I believe, yes. Um, I think, to me, it's very interesting, the Mozambican scenario, because Mozambique entered this shaky peace between um, Renamo and Frelimo. And it was a shaky peace. I mean, it's not, you're not talking of, you know, they'd become a rainbow nation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, however, 
As soon as oil and gas was discovered in the north, suddenly Renamo troops were there with new uniforms, new weapons, um, and it would be interesting to know where that comes from. The second thing um, concerning the north is that there is a, a spillover from Tanzania, um, from Islamist extremism. Mm. And not all of those people running around under the name of um, Islam are really Islamists. Many of them are criminal elements that join because it gives them freedom to do what they want. Yeah, it's a nice smokescreen. It is, absolutely. But that area has huge implications for South Africa. Um, you know, and I know that we have a, 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 a mutual agreement with Mozambique to help as and when. Um, I think the Mozambican army will probably call on South Africa to help shortly mm. because it's in both countries' interest to stop this. Um, I think within South Africa, we've already seen the development of certain radical cells, um, and not only Islam, but also right-wing cells, yes. and that creates problems for us. So, you know, we need to stop one of the two um, in order to try and achieve some sensibility and stability in the country. Most of what we spoke about was uh, from your book, Executive Outcomes Against All Odds. Uh, can you also speak to us about, you know, just a short description of uh, composite warfare? Because I think our listeners, you know, really need to pick up this book as well, because it has a lot of comprehensive uh, information in here that I think would be good reading for any, any person. I think the book Com um, Composite Warfare um, really germinated when we were in Angola as executive outcomes. Um, I think the South African Defence Force could have done better in Angola. Um, I ever think that we were often politically um, misdirected, um, which resulted in a lot of casualties up there. Um, because I think some of our generals, not all of them, but some of them, were very keen to play the political game. Mm -hmm. um, what executive outcomes proved was that if we assist a losing side, the government in the Angolan instance, that within a very short space of time the war could be ended. Um, and that was the foundation for composite warfare, to say African armies are incorrectly trained, use the wrong doctrine, um, and of course there are other problems as well, such as command and control, leadership, etc. But by looking at the, at the concepts applied during the executive outcomes years, and, and prior to that, and even subsequent to that, made me think that there's a need for African armies to have an African textbook on how to conduct um, successful military operations. You know, if you want to um, deploy your military, it costs a huge amount of money. Um, so you want to end a conflict as quickly as possible, or so I would think. Mm. Um, and that was, the end result was composite warfare. Even in a recent blog post uh, titled The Cause for Concern, you stated that uh, we have embarked on an increasingly fragile political trajectory. Why do you say this? You know, I, I look at, at how a state... Um, considers itself to be stable. Um, and I think people confuse ruling party, the state, and the government with one another. And it all just becomes the government. Yes. Um, why did I say that? I think what we are seeing is a perception being created through mainstream and social media. Um, 
And that perception is being driven by divisive politics. That has a huge impact on everything else, whether it be our intelligence services, our law enforcement, our armed forces, our economy, governance as a whole, and the people. Um, it has a huge impact on that. There is so much negativism and internal sabotage within government organizations. Um, there's so many outside political influences coming in. I'm not white enough, I'm not black enough, I'm not colored enough, that we've actually pushed ourselves into a corner where mainstream and social media are exploiting differences and in a way driving militant narratives. And that concerns me greatly. You know, I don't want us looking like Iraq or Libya or DRC or wherever. Um, this is a country with great potential. Um, I firmly believe that 90% of the people in this country, whether they're black, white or any color in between, want to live and let live. They want to have a job and they want to be safe. I think we are allowing 10% to actually swing the tail of the dog. But that 10% are actually, um, in a way, um, being given more credibility by the left and right-wing narratives on social media and in the mainstream media. And that's causing me great concern. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you, if you really want to look at it, when we start fighting one another, which is what people are calling for, um, they don't know what the end result's going to be. They've never seen it. A lot of them have maybe read about it. And this isn't going to be a campaign that's going to be a couple of bombers dropping bombs and, and, a, and a few units fighting. This is going to involve everyone. And that includes our children, our families, our friends, the people who work with and for us. It impacts everyone. And I don't want to see this happen. And I will do what I can to stop it because the people calling for this conflict actually have no idea what they are calling for. Eben, you've mentioned that you are working on a new book. What can we expect in this new book? It's a work in, in, in progress, <laughs> in process. Um, I'm documenting the role of STEP in Africa and what we've done, okay. those that have become known, those operations, as well as um, the outside narratives to still stop STEP. Um, and they continue. Mm. You know, I can, I can mention that we were called by a game park up in Africa to have a look at um, the problems in the game park. Um, I actually flew out of Nigeria straight into that country. Um, and I took one of my guys with me, who, by the way, happened to be black. Um, you know, we have this whole racist mm, thing. Yes. Um, racist dogs of war. Yeah, of mm. which 80% are black, so we're not sure who the racists <laughs> are. Um, and we just laugh at that anyway. Mm. But I deployed with the rangers, as did my colleague with me. Um, we identified certain shortcomings. We had discussions with them. Um, and what, Sorry, was this to stop poaching? Or was yes. there rebel forces hiding in there? Or? Everything. Um, oh. There are rebel forces in there. There are proxy forces in there, and there are poachers in there. Um, slaughtering their herds of rhino and elephant and whatever. Um, we submitted a proposal to them, and they were approached by the U.S. Command for Africa, known as AFRICOM. 
and told that if they engage us, they will make sure that all of the park's funding is cut off. So these things are still happening. Mm. And I'm not anti-US, but I'm anti a foreign policy that actually allows chaos and conflict and even things such as poaching to continue. But I'm not anti them, but I'm anti elements of any government's foreign policy that is aimed at weakening or destroying what there is in a country. And it's not only me saying so. I have people from the park who have given me statements to say what happened. Um, Sadly, these park rangers were trained by African people, and in a very short space of time, a lot of them were killed, trying to do what they are there and paid to do. It puts me back. Yeah. We're being trained to fail. Yes. Eben, where can people reach you? Where can they read about you? Uh, where can they follow you? Um, I have a blog, which I am not very good at keeping up. Um, I am on Facebook and I am on Twitter. Um, the books are available um, through Bushwar Books. Um, may I give the email address? Yes, please. It's double or their web address, www war books w a r b o k s dot c o dot z a um, and they have my books and they have many other very interesting books written by men who've done very similar things to what i've done and i think all of them deserve to have their stories told yeah i actually saw the one about uh, mike hall as well that's being published and i think you were at the book launch as well a very interesting guy no i wasn't i was um very fortunate to get an email from his son um, who wrote the book, Chris Hall. Mm. And um, he asked whether I'd be prepared to read his manuscript before it went to print and to sort of give a, a, a one, two paragraph review on it. Mm. Of course, I was very excited because mm. as a kid, I knew of Michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I, I got this uh, manuscript, which I devoured in a short time. And then said to him, I'm prepared to write that if I can meet his dad. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. And he reluctantly agreed, but um, we went off to see his dad. And to me, it was just one of those really surreal experiences in life. Here's this old man um, who was so smartly dressed and so well-mannered, and we really had a good time just talking and, and sort of reminiscing. Um, and he was very proud of his son's book as well. And it was nice to talk to, you know, the guy who probably in many ways put this type of work on the map. Evan, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It's been a real honor for me. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This episode was presented by Franco Rousseau and produced by Incessant Media. We would like to thank our sponsors, Nederum Financial Advisors, Roadtrip RSA and Walter Kloof Guesthouse for their support.